Fantastic, Charles. I think I remember the first time you did that. A couple of years ago. We are continuing, carrying on, Treasures for Children campaign this year. Very important, very close to my heart, I know, to yours too, in which we collect new toys for the New Kensington branch of the Salvation Army all the way through December 10th. And believe me, that makes a lot of children happy who may not have had the same joy that our children have on that day. So please keep it coming. And today does, in fact, it's been mentioned, I begged and urged Chuck Matone, my friend and co-labor, and also Kathy, my friend and co-labor, not to do anything about today. It is the 40th anniversary of my being in in the area. Uh, We flew down on the 17th. The 18th, I spoke 40 years ago today into IUP to an audience that was stocked with some pretty hostile folks and some very friendly folks. And uh, I'm very appreciative. I didn't want anything to be made of this particular day because I didn't want to distract the focus from our Lord Jesus Christ and the message today. But on the other hand, I did have to, and I was wisely counseled, I think, I know, wisely counseled, especially by my true yoke fellow, Pammy. I should say something, and it's true, I should. I wanted to say this from Luke chapter 22 and verse 28. The thing I think of now is what Jesus said to his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion. He said, you have been with me in all of my trials. He prefaced it by saying, I am among you as one who serves. And I hope that that's characterized the ministry that God has given me in this area. I'm among you as a waiter, he meant literally, a waiter, a waiter at your table. And not even a cook. God prepares the meals. But more importantly to me, this is about and some of you here today have, were there that day. And even before I came, Pastor Kavicki was the faithful pastor from whom I took the mantle back in 1978. And you were here longer than I have been. And my thoughts go to those of you who have stood with me. The 40 years, to be quite frank with you, have been marked by profound sorrow. And many griefs, a lot of adversities, and testings, trials, temptations. They have marked, been marked by disaffiliations, not that I engineered them or wanted them. But as we advanced in the truth and kept on in a moving viewpoint, it necessitated leaving behind some things, some affiliations, some friends. And there's no axis to grind at all. There's only love. There's only God's love. And I am profoundly grateful today that because I can't imagine being in your place as members of the congregation, members of my co-laborers that have worked and labored together with me, the deacons, the staff, the workers, the unpaid workers, the volunteers, 
And you, as my dream has always been to have a ministry of ministers, and that's what we have. All of you are ministers, faithful and able. I can't imagine whether I would have been loyal to a a guy like me going through the changes I went through, whether they were failures, whether they were successes, whether they were changes, profound changes in doctrine and profound changes in affiliations. I don't know. I don't know. Would I have been true? Would I have been faithful? Would I have stood true? And you have. You are those who have been with me in all my trials. And some of you for 37 years, some for 35, some for 23, some for one year, some for 40 and more. And so I was right to say this shouldn't be about anything to do with me. But I was wrong to think that I shouldn't mention it at all because it has to do with the faithfulness of our Lord and with you. And he has never left me alone because, yes, we have become acquainted. And I thank God for being acquainted with a man who is acquainted with sorrows. My life has been marked by it. It is marked by it. Your lives have been marked by it. We've been together in many sorrows. But what marks us is not what defines us. What defines us is the joy of the Lord. They went out, says Nehemiah 8.10, after the teacher in a pulpit exegeted the scripture and gave the sense, the sense of what God was saying. And we know that sense is Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's everything. And the people went out rejoicing. And the preacher said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so we have been marked by sorrows, some even recently. Carol, I'm sorry for your loss, but excited to hear your message that you preached at your sister's memorial. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. We have a ministry of ministers. I've never been left alone by the triune God. I've never been left alone because I've had you. I've had all of you. And it is profound to me that those words in Luke 22, 28, and then 22, 29, Jesus said something to his disciples that had been with him through all his trials. He said, to you is appointed the kingdom of God. And I hope there's some application of that. There is, and I think the next 40 years are going to be devoted. We have concluded 40 years on the discovery of the universal impact of the cross of Christ, which is the breadth and the width of his love. We've known something of the depth and the height of his love, the vertical beam of the cross of Christ. We have now only now begun to grasp the breadth and the width, the horizontal slat of the cross upon which our Savior was nailed. But I believe that the next 40 years will be devoted to how the impact of that cross will have profound impact on our own personal lives, thought lives every moment, lives of action and deed, lives of rapport with one another and fellowship, 
and outreach to a lost and dying humanity, that I believe the cross's most profound influence will be the personal, transformative, and liberating influence in our lives. I would much rather bear about in my body the dying of the Lord Jesus than to stay alive in this present evil age. And to stay alive in this evil age, unaffected by the cross, is to be a man without a cross and to be a person without real life. It is to be dead while we live. And so, 2 Corinthians 4.10, I carry about in my body, we do, the dying of the Lord Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested right in our mortal bodies, right at this turn of the ages, right at this juncture of two ages which God arranged in order on purpose, the evil age first and the age to be invaded by the messianic age of Jesus Christ. He has invaded this evil age with the intention of delivering us. And so Jesus Christ died for our sins in order to deliver us from this present evil age. If there's a curse on any other gospel, then the gospel of the uncontingent, free grace of God, calling people into existence that didn't exist before. If there's another gospel, and if there's a curse on that other gospel, the curse is that those who believe another gospel are stuck in the present evil age instead of delivered from it. And my intention is to proclaim the word of God in such a way that we are delivered from this present evil age. God has invaded it. A life that isn't marked by sorrow isn't in the combat. But a life that's not defined by joy has not known the love of God that passes knowledge. So with that, I want to call today's message, What is Faith?, which is a series, just to show that we keep on moving. Faith as Perception, Part 2, last Veterans Day, we began this. I want to always dedicate the message to the Lord Jesus Christ, but let it be a gift to you from me today. Faith as Perception, Part 2. From the law, the Torah, there's Exodus 14.13 as a pinpoint, or I guess we could say a PowerPoint. From the prophets, there is Isaiah 52.10 and 53.1, in which we have our famous apocalypto word and the word soteria, salvation. From Exodus 14.13, we have the command to watch. Stand back, stand still, watch the salvation that the Lord accomplishes here today. From the Gospels, we have Jesus Christ being under an inquisition by a high priest that year, Caiaphas and other priests. Under inquisition, he is asked point blank, are you then the Messiah? And he said, yes, I am. And you, Caiaphas, and all of you present will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, seated at the right hand of power. 
not knowing that they would see that, and they would see that enthroned Son of Man at the right hand of the power of God's unconditional, omnipotent love by which he redeems all creation, that that enthroned Son of Man would be Jesus himself, and that throne would be Calvary's cross, where God enacted our so great salvation, raising from the dead a crucified man, a crucified prophet, God of very God. And then from the epistles, we will learn of cognitive invincibility, the unbeatable mental attitude dynamics that come with a faith perception of the totality of God's love. So, consider once again, two verses in Deutero-Isaiah. First, there's 52.10. The Lord will apocalyptically reveal, and there's our word apocalypto, found in Romans 1.17, in one way the key word of Romans, the epistle. This is still as- asking and answering the question. Romans, the epistle, quits it. What is it? By asking the question, what is faith? The Lord will apocalyptically reveal his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth will see. Please notice that. They will see. It's the Greek word horao, which means not only to watch, observe, and see with perception, but to also passively experience the salvation of God, the salvation of our God, the salvation that comes from our God. Apocalypto, Romans 1.17, Soteria, salvation, Romans 1.16, the back-to-back key verse of Romans. The holy arm of God, apocalypsed or dramatically revealed by him, is the same as the righteousness of God that is being apocalyptically revealed by the gospel. And that's very important. Paul's gospel. Because Paul's gospel is the same as the gospel of God about his son, Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God is the bared arm of God enacting salvation, liberation, transformation of all creation, enacting judgment and salvation in one act, Jesus Christ, the judge judged, and the resurrection of the crucified Christ, justification, rectification for all the human world. Now the Lord whom Isaiah predicts will, future, apocalyptically expose his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. He's already bared his holy arm in the crucified Christ, whom he raised from the dead and elevated on high. So this is the same as saying that God's righteousness has been in Romans 1.17 and is being revealed. It's the saving act of God in Christ and the saving act which is Christ's faithful death 
This anticipates a third segment of our teaching, what is faith? Faith is Christ's faithful death. And this is perceived, and by perceived I mean with understanding, with insight. This is comprehended, grasped meaningfully, resulting in transformation. This is perceived by those whom God has gifted with faith. And the salvation that comes from our God, that all the ends of the earth will see, is already, even now, perceived by the eyes of faith. Blessed are your eyes, for they see. And this faith perceives the total expression of God's love. It perceives the height and the depth of it in Calvary. And it perceives the breadth and the width of it in its universally saving influence. Without faith, it is not only impossible to please God, it is also impossible to grasp and to comprehend or perceive the height and the depth, the breadth and the width of the love of God in Christ Jesus. And again, this reiterates why in Ephesians 3:16 to 17, Paul prays first that by receiving strength of the Holy Spirit in your inner man that you will Christ will in turn reside at home in our hearts. We bear about in our bodies the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our mortal bodies. Christ may be at home in our hearts by faith, it says. And only then that we come to comprehend or grasp with all the saints the immeasurable dimensions of the love of Christ and be filled up with all the fullness of God. Being filled up with all the fullness of God is to take, as we used to call it, Hill 319. And the closer you get to the top, the more machine gun nests there are of the enemy. And yet we proceed fearlessly, confidently, boldly, even audaciously to the top. To be filled up with all the fullness of Christ or of God is to be filled up with Christ and to have Christ fully formed in us the labor of the pastor-teacher, the labor of the apostle. The labor is that Christ may be formed in you, Galatians 4.19. And that, again, is the same as being all filled up with all the fullness of God. For who is all the fullness of God but Christ? The second verse in Second Isaiah is 53.1, which we didn't give as much attention to. It's partially quoted in Romans 10:16. It says, "Who has believed our report?" Akoe is the word. And to whom has the arm of the Lord, there it is again, been apocalyptically exposed in power, apocalypto once again. Now, one of the guys I read three or four hours a day when I was in my last hiatus from you. Martinez C. DeBoer, that's 
small de, and then B-O-E-R. He wrote a Galatians commentary, which we may go to next. GTL, Galatians the letter. He observes that Isaiah 52.10 and 53.1, he says, the revelation of God's arm is no mere disclosure of previously hidden information of a heavenly mystery, but the visible coming of God to effect salvation in the world. The visible coming of God to effect salvation in the world. I would add to that question, who has believed our report? I would add, there's an answer. The answer is those to whom God has gifted with faith. Who has believed our report? The answer, anyone whom God has gifted with faith. Faith is the gift of God by which we perceive the totality of God's love as it was apocalypsed in Christ Jesus, specifically in the Christ event, specifically in Jesus Christ and him crucified, whom God raised from the dead. It is profoundly important that we recognize that he whom God resurrected in glory was one who was crucified in shame. Faith is the gift of God by which we perceive the totality of God's love. In fact, even more so, faith is the gift of God by which we perceive, lay hold of, comprehend the reality that is Jesus himself. The Galatians, Paul had insisted in a previous epistle, had received the promised Holy Spirit. The promise of Abraham is none other than the gift of the Holy Spirit, as we'll learn in Galatians if we go there. Paul insists that they receive the promised Holy Spirit, not by the works of the law, but on the occasion of the akoe, the report. Isaiah 53.1. On the occasion of the report, the gospel landing on their ears, entering their ear gate. That's when they received the Spirit. On the occasion of the message about the faithfulness of Christ. So, they received the Spirit. We would say today, not only not by the works of the law, but not when they said a sinner's prayer. (laughs) Right, Phil? Not when they said a sinner's prayer. But when the report, akoe, landed upon their ears and kindled faith. Or I like the word gifted the hearers with faith. It's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, even our faith. And so Paul insisted that they receive the Holy Spirit, the blessing of Abraham, and I would insist that the blessing of Abraham, the Holy Spirit, constitutes them as the Israel of God on the occasion of the hearing of the report. And so, that's true for you too. Romans, as well as Galatians, teaches, and this is where we're going. This is a projection of where we're going. Romans, as well as Galatians, teaches that those who are justified by Christ's faithful death, not their faith, those who are justified by Christ's faithful death, Christ's faithful death, 
We are justified by his blood, justified by his death, justified by his faithfulness. Those who are justified by Christ's faithful death consequently and subsequently live their lives by faith. The justified one who is justified by the faith of Jesus Christ must now live by faith. But we, so God gives us life, then he gives us faith. He makes us alive with Christ Jesus, for by grace you are saved through a faithfulness not of yourselves. And we live by faith. That means we live our lives in a participation with Christ's own faithfulness, Christ's own fidelity. That's why we never consider faithful service to him to be hard, long time faithful service to him to be hard. Because the yoke is easy and the burden is light because it's a participation with Messiah's own fidelity. We will only be as faithful as we recognize that we are participants in Messiah's fidelity. And so participation is the next thing of what is faith, faith as participation. But we're anticipating future lessons here. When did God bear his holy arm for all to see? In Hebrews 9.26, it says, But now, once and for all, at the turn of the ages, suntilaya means at a juncture or a turn, an axis of two ages. By faith we understand, notice this, by faith we perceive that the ages were placed in a certain order by the utterance of God. The turn of the ages, the axis of the two ages. One is an evil age in which Adam is the bearer of human destiny. The second is the messianic age in which Christ is the bearer of human destiny. And all the teaching I do is so that you won't be stuck in the first age, but experience a great salvation in the messianic age every other gospel other than the gospel of God about his son which has universal amplification every other gospel having to do with anything human human action human works works of the law works of Christian service works of Christian repentance works of Christian believing any other gospel will leave you under a curse not that he are cursed or damned but because you are stuck in the evil age and you're running like a cartoon character without making any progress in stuck in the evil age. And that's the curse of another gospel. That's Galatians 1, 8 and 9, but that's coming. That's anticipating. So once at the end of the ages or the turn of the ages, Christ appeared. The word phanerao means explicitly he was made visible. We weren't there. So the visibility has to be to the eyes of faith now. He appeared once and for all to abolish sin by the offering of himself. Visible to the eyes of faith, then, is the destruction into oblivion of the world's sin, which is being taught to the children right now, even as the ladies drop Alka-Seltzer tablets in water in front of their eyes. You say, how do you know that's happening? Got eyes in the back of my head. They see right through that wall and that other wall and the other wall. That's how I know. Visible to the eyes of faith, 
is the destruction into oblivion to nothingness of the world's sin in the spotless Lamb of God, which occurred in Christ's faithful death. I wasn't there, but I was there. I was crucified with Christ. You weren't there, but you were there. You were crucified with Christ. We weren't there when he died, were we? But we were. We died, and our lives are hid with Christ in God. And we will be there when he appears in glory, because when he does, we'll appear with him. Colossians 3, 4. Not only that, visible to the eyes of faith is the last judgment. You know what I see, how I see the last judgment? By looking at the crucified Christ. That is the last judgment. What comes after the crucifixion and resurrection of the crucified Christ that's more important than that? Some last judgment? Or is that not the last judgment? Only in the death of Jesus Christ can destruction and salvation be part of one event. Destruction of our ontology in Adam and deliverance of us into a new creation in which the bearer of our destiny, and I speak of all human beings, is one Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Visible to the eyes of faith is the last judgment revealed in the death of Christ for us, which I call a death which is the manifestation of God's total love, which I prefer to call his fiery philanthropy. Fiery love for people in which he consumes everything that is against them. The fire of love, hotter than hell. Tell that to your hell-believing friends. This is why, again, in Mark 14.62, this one slammed into me like a locomotive. The one who is the truth, when he said, I am the truth, he was saying, I am the total reality of God's total love. I am the totality of all that God is in bodily form. I am what a real man is. I am true humanity, what a real human being is. I am the totality of humanity. I am the epitome of what creation was intended to be. I became flesh. I am reality. I am the reality of uncreated divinity. I am the reality of created, redeemed reality. I am the truth. I am the way. I am that life. I am the life-giving spirit, he said. The first man was of the earth, and he was earthy. The second man, the Lord from heaven, is a life-giving spirit. The Holy Spirit is Christ giving life. Now, that's why in 1462 of Mark, the one who is the truth and who is reality, he wasn't lying. The one who is the truth wasn't lying. Caiaphas, the high priest, his hostile audience, and all those present at his inquisition, and that's what it was. Jesus said, you will all 
He was speaking of Caiaphas and the other inquisitors around in that hostile audience. You will all, and he implied by this, all of humanity, because all flesh shall see the salvation of the Lord, and the salvation of the Lord is Jesus. To see him is to be caught up in his salvation. If you don't believe that, ask Saul of Tarsus. It's to be judged and saved in one glance. He said, Caiaphas asked him the pointed question, the answer to which caused Caiaphas to rip his robes and call him a blasphemer. Jesus said, you will see, all of you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He was identifying himself as being that mysterious figure of the Son of Man in Daniel 7, 13 to 14, who would come with the clouds of heaven. He would be the man from heaven, not the man from earth. You will see him at the right seated. He was seated on a throne called the cross of Calvary. At the right hand of power. With him was God reconciling the world to himself. The power there was the power of the reconciliation of all the world of humankind. They would see the Son of Man coming with power, and I'll explain to you that the angels were also with him, not visible to the human eye. He said, I could ask the Father, and he'd cut out, out of the whole mass of billions of angels, he'd cut out 12 legions if I wanted them, and save me from the cross. But the angels weren't there to save him. He was there to save you. The angels were there just to watch. Angels, watch. Humanity, stand still and watch the salvation that God accomplishes, that God has accomplished in a crucified Messiah. Are you the Mashiach, Banham Vorak, the Messiah? Of God, the Son of the Blessed One. They wouldn't even pronounce the name God. He's the Blessed One. Even today, in much of Jewish literature, it's G D. They won't say God. They won't say Yahweh. They'll say Adonai. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? The Hebrew is Mashiach Ben Ham Vorak. Jesus answered, I am. Plain speech here. And all of you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This is the apocalyptic revelation of the Son of Man. John, who wrote Revelation, figured it out because he blended Daniel seven thirteen to 14, the Son of Man coming with the clouds, with one who is pierced in Zechariah twelve ten. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, even the eyes of those who pierced him. That's all of humanity. In the Adamic ontology, we pierced him, but he was pierced through for our transgressions to save us. In Revelation 1 7, then John put it together this is Calvary. This is the last judgment. You got to look back to see it, not forward. Oh, forward, you'll see it when everybody sees 
that the cross is the last judgment. It'll be very destructive. It'll destroy more conceptions of religious stuff that you've ever imagined right then, but it'll be a glorious salvation, a universal one, unfolded right before our eyes. Calvary, then, is the last judgment where the judge came to be judged on our behalf. So I would ask the question, is there salvation in what we call the eschaton, the final moment? We answer yes, because the eschaton is Jesus. Faith is gifted to us on the occasion of insights granted by God. And listen carefully to this. If someone is not convinced of the reality, capital R, of the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, or the reality and the truth of the gospel, which is the universally influential, redemptive, and reconciling impact of the cross, if someone is not convinced that you have received of what you have received as an insight and perceived by faith with which you were gifted, then you will not convince them. Let's take that off the table. Let's take that responsibility off your shoulders. You will not convince them. Anyone here who understands the glorious truth of this gospel was not convinced by me. Oh, you may have been convinced as I was preaching, but God convinced you. Philippians 3.15, God. If anybody's of any other mind, Paul says, then fight with them. No, if anybody is of any other mind than this, God will convince them. We should be the relaxed ones, not those who are against this gospel. We should be the ones with the relaxed mental attitude, not the ones who are against this gospel. We're not fighting with flesh and blood, but we are fighting a battle against the principalities and powers that are veiling this gospel to flesh and blood. That's our real battle. If you're battling flesh and blood, then people won't see you as hostile to them. Oh, what people are missing by putting together what they call resistance, human resistance to human power. What a waste of time. Yes, we have a resistance. We stand in resistance against the inimical, apocalyptic, cosmic powers, not against flesh and blood. What a waste. What a waste is being experienced today in the name of ideologies and political stuff. What a waste. So, resistance is the word used, antistemi, stand against the devil, and he will flee from you. Stand with the full armor from God, withstand, and in the day when you're finished with all that, you'll have a reward from God, the reward that's given to veterans of the apocalyptic combat. And so, maybe... People will be convinced as you're speaking to them. Maybe he'll do it while you're telling them about this gospel of the glory of Christ. Maybe not. But he will do it because every eye will see him. Every knee will bow to him. Every tongue will praise him and a happily willing pledge of absolute allegiance to him in Isaiah 45, 23, in Zechariah 12, 10, Daniel 7, 13, and 14, Revelation 1, 7, Romans 14, 11, and Philippians 2, 6 through 11, it'll be in print, don't sweat it. It is important to understand that those who do not believe this truth, here we go into fourth gear, third and a half, fourth gear, 
Those who do not believe this truth do not believe because there is a veil over their mind, the place that perceives. There is a veil over their mind. And who has put it there? Paul said, the God of this age. Strangely now, the God of this age is sometimes called Jesus by people who misidentify him. You say, why shock? Paul said, you, Corinthians, I'm afraid that if somebody came and preached another gospel, that you would receive it, that another gospel which isn't ours, and that you would, it would be about a Jesus that's not the Jesus we spoke of, and that you would receive a spirit that isn't the Holy Spirit. It might make you dance in the aisles, but it's not God. It might make you enthusiastic that you are triumphal in your own efforts, but it's not the Holy Spirit of God. Paul said to the enthusiastic people in Corinth, he said, death works in us. Death is working in us. But life is working in you. It wasn't a compliment. They were staying alive in the evil age through a false gospel. They were staying alive in a false age. They were probably even dancing with John Travolta and the Bee Gees. Staying alive, staying alive. No glory in staying alive. I'd rather be bearing about in my body the dying of the Lord Jesus in this evil age than to be staying alive in this age and being what 1 Timothy 5, 6 says, dead while we live. The curse of another gospel is that people in the words of the U2 song get stuck in a moment and can't get out of it. Stuck in a moment, can't get out of it. Stuck in the evil age and can't get out of it because there's no human dynamic that can get you out of it. That's why we preach the word. The God of this age has blinded them so that they cannot perceive the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in the face of Jesus Christ. Who is the radiance, the Shekinah. Of the invisible God. Second Corinthians 4, 3 to 6. Now, pay attention carefully here. The blinding is supernaturally imposed. You're not going to remove a veil that's supernaturally imposed by angelic power. Listen carefully. The blinding is supernaturally imposed by the God of this age. 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. This age is an evil age. The removal of the veil is also supernatural then. The imposing of the veil by the God of this age, small g of course, is supernaturally imposed. The removal of the veil is also supernatural. It is by the God who designed the sequence of the ages in Hebrews 11.3. The evil age first to be invaded and to give way to the God of the messianic age that came with the Christ event. And that means the resurrection of the second man who is called eschaton. Adam. Is there salvation in the eschaton? Yes, because the eschaton is the second Adam, Christ in whom all 
are made alive and to whom all receive rectifying life. Romans 5.18, 1 Corinthians 15.22. Stop taking that seriously and you'll be stuck in a moment that you can't get out of. So, and I'm speaking to preachers, I'm, pre- I'm speaking to reverends, to fathers, to priests, to clergymen, all across the world. Preach the gospel. So then, the enlightenment of the mind, the enlightening of the mind by which the gospel of the universal glory of Christ is made known by God and perceived by faith is not accomplished by angelic action as the blinding of the mind is. The blinding of the mind is angelic action, the God of this age, an angel of light. But the removal of the veil is accomplished by a divine action. I told you at the very first message in Romans that we would use the pastoral epistles as interpretive tools in Romans. I've been doing that, but it's kind of like on the down low, so to speak. But 1 Timothy 3.16, which enumerates aspects of what Paul calls the mystery of godliness, which means the source of God-approved livingness, is this. It says that God in the flesh, and one of those six points is that God in the flesh was seen by angels. What's the big deal about being seen by angels? I'll tell you what the big deal about being seen by angels is. Angels who were all around that cross, all around Jesus Christ, all around and with him all the time, could only watch as he affected our so great salvation. They couldn't help him. If angels had to watch, then who are you? You think you're going to cooperate, collaborate in your justification? 1 Timothy 3.16 again, he was seen by angels. That means that though angels were always with him and around him, they could only observe. They could only Watch. In fact, Enoch was smart to call the angels the watchers. And they even made a stupid movie about it, I think. The watchers. The, wa- the angels were watchers. Their angels are watchers in the sense that they can only watch. And as 1 Timothy 1, 10 to 12 says, they peer into, gaze into, academically study and observe the salvation that has come to you. They observe. God enacts salvation. Angelic power is responsible for imposing a veil over the hearts of unbelievers. God's power removes the veil. If the veil's been removed, God did it. He gifted you with faith. Now, this is really third gear. Angels may be ministering spirits, as the scripture says, sent to the human heirs of salvation, but they're not the saviors. Jesus Christ is our great God and Savior in Titus 2.13. They can only watch. When God enacted our so great salvation in and by and with and as Jesus Christ, 
Angelic action does not bring human salvation. This is God's action in Christ, Christ's action in God, and the Spirit's action in the act of regeneration. Again, in Hebrews 1.14, angels may be ministering spirits sent to serve the human heirs of salvation, but they aren't the saviors. Moreover, if even an angel from heaven, Paul says, comes to you and preaches another gospel than the one by which God graciously called you into existence as a new creation without any contingency on your part, then let that angel be accursed. Angels, like all of Israel and all of humanity, can only stand still and see, watch, observe, contemplate, and for us experience the salvation that the Lord accomplishes for them. This is powerfully illustrated in Exodus chapter 14, verse 13, the famous scene on the beach with the Red Sea in front of them, the armies of Pharaoh barreling down on them with his armored divisions to wipe them out. Moses said, stand still and watch the salvation that God is going to bring about for you today. Stand still and watch. The word is horao, see. And see means both to watch and what else? Did they just watch it? Let me ask you this. What does horao mean? Does it mean just to see? All flesh shall see the salvation of the Lord. Does it mean just to see? I mean, you can see the salvation of the Lord happening for someone else and you get plunged into hell. What does see mean? But it means experience. Because those people on that beach didn't only see God's spirit blow apart that Red Sea into two halves so they could walk over on dry land, but they also walked over on dry land, which means they experienced the salvation of God that God accomplished for them. So seeing means experience. When all flesh together sees the salvation of the Lord or sees Jesus, Yeshua, then all flesh shall be experiencing that salvation. In resurrection. So, but the impact of the cross must not just be viewed universally. It has to be viewed personally. You take up your cross means the word, the cross has a transformative, liberating impact in our lives, in the necessary adversities that go with the juncture of the ages, the adversity. And as our, our friend Mars, M-A-R-Z, says, he, he has his shirt, and I have one too, which says Adversity University on it. But on the bottom, there's apocatastasis. Yes, the cross has a universal impact, but it also has a very personal, transformative, and liberating one in the sorrows, the trenches, the battles, the adversities of life which we're not exempt from. This life is an agon. Oh, there's joys, but there's adversities in which we glory. So the salvation that God accomplished, he accomplishes single-handedly. Oh, let me invent a new word, single-armedly, the bearing of his arm. 
Salvation is the Lord's doing. You've heard that said before. Angels only watch. And Israel and all the rest of humanity can only stand still and watch as God accomplishes it for us. Salvation is of the Lord. It is marvelous in our eyes, in our eyes as our faith perceives it. It is marvelous only in the eyes of faith. And faith is a gift of perceptiveness from God that he gives us so that we can see our so great salvation and then experience it. With our reference here to angelology, there's a suggestion then of the curse uttered by Paul in Galatians against any preachers of a gospel that opposes the uncontingent grace of God that proceeds from his unrestricted love. The curse that Paul pronounces is real. Let them be accursed. And he even says to the Galatians, you are under a curse, those of you who are under the law, because the law has become an adverse power controlled by sin. What is the curse? Damnation to hell? No, just for the time being, being stuck in the present evil age with your legs running with no progress, trying to do something for Jesus and trying to do something for God, stuck in the present evil age, trying, trying, but never triumphing. That's the curse. People are so afraid of the curse, and they're afraid they look down the road and think they might be cursed when they're already under the curse because they're stuck in the present evil age. I would have been stuck in the present evil age if God had revealed what he's revealed to me now and I decided to stay in the favor of other affiliations. I'd have been under a curse. I still could have preached and people might have even appreciated it as we all stayed under a curse together. The curse that Paul pronounces is real. Because if the result of preaching a so-called gospel of human deserving is to remain stuck in the present evil age, both the preacher and his hearers. So fourth gear, as angels are not the ones who save, neither are those who disclose or apocalypse God's son. They are not those who the angels can't only say, not save. They can't disclose. They can't reveal God's son. God alone can reveal God. God alone can reveal Jesus. God alone reveals Jesus. A man can't reveal Jesus except for the man, Christ Jesus. So this, too, is a divine prerogative. This is illustrated at Caesarea Philippi in Matthew 16, 13 to 18. Matthew reports a conversation that occurred at Caesarea Philippi between Jesus and his disciples. A double upshot came from that conversation. First, Peter's declaration, Jesus, he said, you, whom you refer to as the son of man, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, you're also a son. You're the son of Jonah. Jonas, you're your father. You are the son of Jonas. You are Peter Jonas, one of the Jonas brothers. You're a rock star. He said, he is at that time. Blessed are you, Simon Bar Jonah, son of Jonas. Why? Because flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven revealed that to you. My Father in heaven, Apocalypto, revealed that to you. 
I say double upshot because Jesus then went on to declare himself to be Christus Faber, Christ the Builder, by saying, on this rock, what? The Father's apocalypse of the Son. On the Father's apocalypse of the Son, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Hades is simply a name for all the adverse cosmic powers that are against us. The church is a hyper-conquering cadre of people, more than conquerors through him who loved us, more than conquerors through him who loved us, in Romans eight thirty-seven, And we're coming to the final point of the message. So to that blessed outburst, Jesus said, Peter, you received a revelation from my father, and I'm going to build my house on that rock. Not you, Peter, even though your name is the rock, and you're not a wrestler or a boxer. The rock I'll build my church on is the father's disclosure of who I am. The truth of the gospel, which comes, and this is the last thing I'll say, because this is where we're going, and this is where some of you already are, but you're going here. Whether you like it or not, you're going to a place called cognitive invincibility. Coined by Nathaniel Brandon, used brilliantly in a doctrinal expose by R.B. Theme Jr., who was my mentor for some time. Cognitive invincibility. I like to call it unbeatable mental attitude dynamic. I don't want to put that into a, (laughs) I was thinking of acronyms, but I wouldn't want to do that because it would be you mad. You mad. The truth of the gospel which comes by an insight from God about his son. First John 5.20, we know that the son of God has come and has given us what? An understanding. He has given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, that we are in him that is true, and he that is true is Jesus Christ, and that's eternal life. My little children, keep yourselves from idols, he then closes. Why? Because there's all kinds of idols. There's another Jesus. There's people who worship the Bible. Bibliolaters, which we hit this past Wednesday, failing to recognize that the scriptures aren't God, but a testimony of Jesus Christ. So, keep yourselves from idols. The truth of the gospel, and this is right to you, my gift to you today, the truth of the gospel, which comes by an insight from God. By that, I don't mean faith is my gift to you. That's God's gift to you. The spirit is God's gift to you. The love of God poured out into your hearts by God the Spirit is God's gift to you. Eternal life is God's gift to you. My gift to you is this assurance that I'm handing off to you from this message. It's this message. The truth of the gospel that comes by an insight from God about his son and is perceived by faith, which we're gifted with, results in cognitive invincibility. By cognitive invincibility, I mean a perceptivity that is persuaded that nothing can ever sever us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, including things above or things below, things that happen in life or things that happen at death. People who say that things below can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus tell you that there's a hell below that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. 
all hellists are idolaters. For they idolize an adverse power that Jesus said has no power at all. And that doesn't mean we call them idols, idolaters, and it doesn't mean we rant and rave. It means that we have great compassion and the desire that they be delivered from it. Because no idolater can inherit the kingdom of God. No person who is an idolater is experiencing the righteousness, the joy, and the peace that is the kingdom of God. They're stuck in a moment in the evil age. They call themselves Christians, and they do the Christian song and the Christian dance. And they play a tune, Jesus said, and we don't dance to it, he said. You play a funeral dirge, and we don't mourn. You play a happy song, and we don't dance. He said to the religious people of his own time, cognitive invincibility means the absolute unqualified assurance that things below or things above, things that happen in life or things that happen at death. I've heard lots of stories of people that went to hell and came back. Bullshit. Nothing that happens in life, nothing that happens in death shall be able to separate us and who's us, those for whom God gave his son for us all in Romans 8.32. Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, in the Christ event. Not things above, not things below. Things that happen in life or things that happen at death. Future or apparently impending things that you fear might come. Present things are our own past come back to bite us. Human beings are institutions, terrorism, famine, Military weapons, terrorism, natural disasters, angelic or demonic beings, or any other creature. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God who is for us in the way, in the shape, and in the form of Jesus Christ our Lord. You hear that? When people run out of things to say, they say, in no way, shape, or form. No way, shape, or form. I didn't mean that in any way, shape, or form. I'll tell you what. I'll use the word way, shape, and form in a correct way. Nothing can separate us from the love of God who is for us in the way and the shape and the form of Jesus Christ. For Jesus Christ is the way and the shape and the form of God. And God is love. This cognitive invincibility in closing was expressed powerfully by Paul in Romans 8, 35. Here's my translation. Who will ever separate us from the love of Christ? Oppression, trouble, persecution, hunger, destitution, danger, violence. As it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Verse 37, no, in all these things, we are super victors, hyper conquerors through him who loved us. That's Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself over for us. Not just handed over, but he handed himself over. Verse 38, for I have been persuaded. Here's Paul's, you mad. Unbeatable mental attitude dynamics. 
I have been persuaded. The passive voice here indicates cognitive invincibility worked in him by the Lord Jesus Christ himself in Romans 14, 14. I have been persuaded, meaning by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor things in the present, nor things about to be, nor powers above, nor powers below, nor any other created thing will ever have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. No adversity which we encounter in this juncture of the ages, no inimical adverse cosmic power, however boastful like loudmouth Goliath, however imposing in its threat, can ever sever us from the love of God as it was apocalypsed in its absolute apex in the Christ event. God has shown himself to be so radically for us that it is unthinkable that anything against us could be capable of changing the uncreated God who changes not. Faith perceives God as for all the world of human beings and as having defeated through Christ Jesus our Lord all that can ever be arrayed against us. Thanks be to God who gives us this victory. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God who gifts us with the faith that perceives this victory. For this reason, faith is the unqualified assurance of the hoped for manifestation of the rectification of all things in glory. It's therefore called both the hope of righteousness, which means the expectation of universal rectification and the hope of glory, which is the glory of Christ being all throughout his creation. This is the interpretation of Galatians 5.5. We, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of justification or the hope of the rectification of all things in Christ Jesus. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything at all, nor does any other religious overture toward God. But what matters is a faith that works within a dynamic sphere of love. Amen. And Father, we thank you. And I thank you for the privilege of being one among this flock as one who waits on table. You prepare the meals. We serve gladly and happily at the table. And we thank you, Father, for these who are here today, for those who are in DVD groups across this country, for those who are listening faithfully in places that are anonymous, for all those who you have counted as part of Tetelestai Phalanx. I don't know how you mark time or whether if 40 years of service means anything to you, Father. I don't know how you mark time, but I do thank you for your faithfulness and your kindness. And I thank you for those who have been with me, whom you have, in your sense of humor, chosen to preach the word in all these trials, all these tests, all these changes. And yet you have instilled in them a fidelity, not to me, but to your word, not to Tetelestai as a phalanx of your body, but to Jesus Christ and to his mind and his thinking. And to the Holy Spirit who leads us and guides us into all truth. Bless this cadre of people. Even those among us today who aren't quite convinced.
even of those among us who really don't care that much. And there aren't many. Bring us into cognitive invincibility in this next phase of our trek, in this faith, hope, and love trek of supernatural grace guiding us to a supernatural goal through your kindness. We thank you for this in Christ's name.